Well, every December, we interrupt our normal study through the word to bring you a special service announcement. Good news of great joy for all the people. Christ, our Savior, is born. What an amazing thing we celebrate, the advent, the arrival. People celebrate or talk about the advent of television or the advent of internet. And every year we stop everything that we're doing to bring to you the advent of Jesus Christ, which is the first coming of Jesus. And also we are not just looking back and celebrating. We, were, we are looking forward in, in, in anticipation of the coming, the return of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take the next um, three or four weeks to talk about Isaiah chapter 9, this ancient prophecy about the Messiah. You can see even in here, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father, Emmanuel, God with us, Wonderful Counselor. We're going to be looking at this passage. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. And then the first part of verse 6, we're going to focus on this morning. This is the word of God. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of former times. When he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor by the, to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Now verse 6, it says, For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. This is a description. You can see how, how this begins. This description of a gloomy, distressed, dark land. Have you ever felt like you are living in a land of gloom and distress? Like this is something we can identify right, with, right? I mean, as we look around at our world and see what's going on, we, we feel that gloom. Gloom is dark or poorly lit, especially so as to appear depressing or frightening. Distressed land, he says, it's a state of low spirits caused by loss of hope or courage. This week, I got a, a text from a friend, a dear friend of mine, and he just said, Mark, I'm struggling. I, I've never really in my life struggled with depression, but, but I, I think that's what best describes what I've been going through the last year and a half or so. Things in our world, things at work. And he's like, I can't get excited about anything. I feel like I don't have anything to look forward to. And this is a joyful, sweet Christian man. I mean, he spends time alone with God every day. He's in the Bible every day, every morning. And he still is like, I, what's going on in my soul that I'm, I'm so depressed? Maybe you can identify with that with this people that Isaiah is writing to in, in this world of gloom and distress. Well, here's the thing. Isaiah 9 starts with gloom, but it ends with glory. And so this might be my first ever sermon title. Usually we don't title sermons, but this one would be from gloom to glory. If you're taking notes, uh, we're going to go on a journey and stop number one. We've got three stops on our journey as we go way back 
to Isaiah chapter 9, like 2,750 years ago, we're going to go back on this journey. And stop number one is how did we get here? How did we get to this land of gloom and distress? And so we're going to start with a little bit of historical context here. This is an ancient prophecy. This is about 730 years before Jesus came to this earth. And he talks about this distressed land is Zebulun and Naphtali. What are those places? Those are meaningless uh, to us as we read this, but those are the northern territories of Israel. So this would be like, if, he's, if you were writing this in modern day, he would be talking about like Minnesota and Michigan, these like border areas of, of our, you know, Montana, these, these areas. That's what Zebulun and Naphtali would have been, the northern boundaries of Israel. And then we're going to go back to chapter 8 to see the context of this, because we, we often just look at these verses about the Savior is going to be born. But go back to chapter 8, and we see the context. So we're going to spend most of our time looking back at, at the context of Isaiah in chapter 8. And he says in verse 4, The Lord said to me, The wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. Now, Assyria was this powerful ancient empire to the north of Israel. Now, they're going to end up invading Israel in 722 BC. Now, they're coming down from the north. So who are the first territories to experience the wrath of Assyria? Yeah, Zebulun and Naphtali, these, these two territories we talked about. Like, like if somehow Canada just decided to come in, they're coming after us, right? And they become this super powerful world power, and, and they come in over the boundary waters, over Lake Superior, into the U.S., and they invade and, become, and begin to take over. Now, we're in Iowa, and we're thinking, Michigan, they kind of deserve it, right? Minnesota, they're rivals. We're, that's, hey, too bad for you. But, but here's what happens. That's kind of a gloomy, dark day, but Isaiah's like, oh, yeah, and they're coming for you too, Iowa. They're taking over. Assyria is coming in. Now, look at what verse 7 says. So we're in Isaiah 8, 7. The Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushing water of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria in all his glory. How is it possible for this pagan nation to overcome Israel? What, is, what does Isaiah say? How is this possible? God's people being destroyed by this godless nation. How is it possible? He says right there. The Lord will certainly bring the king of Assyria against them. Stop number one. How did we get here to this land of gloom and darkness? God used a godless king to destroy Israel. Just stop and let this settle for a second. And we're, if you read the whole book of Isaiah, this is almost a theme of his writing. God is in charge of the events of history. It's not that God just 
let the gloom happen. It's that he made it happen. God is sovereign over the events of history. It's a story that that God is writing. It begins with, in the beginning, and it ends with, the end. Like We are in the middle of this story that will have an end. And when the author closes the book, right, we know for us, the end, it's just the beginning of the story for eternity with the Lord. But we ask now, stop number two, is this question. Why would God do this? Chapter 8, verse 11, for this is what the Lord said to me with great power, to keep me from going the way of this people. Just stop right here. Isaiah is saying, the Lord said something to me with great power. He's getting the Lord's, or getting Isaiah's attention. He's saying, Isaiah, you need to listen to me. Do not go the way of this people. We're going to talk about the way of this people here in a second, but the people rejected God. And at the end of chapter eight, I know we're kind of jumping around, but just look at the end of chapter eight, verse 21 and 22. It describes what life is going to look like apart from God. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. So imagine these displaced Minnesotans and Michiganites, and they start coming down to Iowa because we have all the food, Right, Uh, Like they say, you know, don't make fun of Iowa with food in your mouth, right? So we got all the corn, we got all the beans, so they're coming down to us, like they're famished, they're hungry, they're starving. So they come down to us and we say, guys, what happened? What happened up there? And they look up to the sky, not to worship God, but they begin to curse God. They're not humbled. They're not repentant. They're mad. That's the description here of these people walking around and they look up and they curse God. Now there's some other things that are happening here politically that we're not gonna go into, but this Israelite king is trying to solve this Assyrian crisis with his own diplomacy and political strength and not God. So he's saying, well, we can figure this out. We can solve this. And he gets rebuked by God. And he's like, no, you guys are going your own way. So here's the question on stop number two. Why did God do this? Bring this Assyrian army, this godless king. Here's the point. And this is almost the big idea of of Isaiah 8 and 9. Fighting darkness with darkness only leads to what? More darkness. 
If you try to live your life without God at the center, you're in the dark. And the more you try to do it without God's help, the darker it gets. I'm going to give you three examples of how we do the same thing as they do and and kind of put this a little bit boots on the ground. What does this look like, fighting darkness with darkness? Well, we already saw in verse 21 that the people are enraged, they're looking upward, and instead of confessing their sin and repenting of their sin, what do they do? They curse God. This is one of the first things that humans do to fight darkness is what? Blame. The first thing. This is the way we do the same thing is blame. One of the features of a land of gloom and darkness is everybody is blaming everybody else. Does that sound familiar? I have problems and it's my parents' fault. I have problems and it's my spouse. I have problems and it's my kids. I have problems and it's the government's fault. It's your fault. It's God's fault. God is at the top of the chain of of blame. Second thing, verse 12, chapter 8, 12. He says to Isaiah, listen to this. Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. The second characteristic or example of fighting darkness with darkness is obsession with conspiracies. Some of you are are kind of holding on to your chair like, where's he going to go with this? This will be fascinating. Here's what a conspiracy theory is, a conspir- or just a conspiracy, let's say. It's a, it's a small, secretive group of people that are plotting or conspiring to do something bad. So here's a question. Are there groups of people that have evil intentions that are plotting bad things? Yes, yes, we as Christians understand this more than anyone, right? The Bible says that, that the, the intentions of the human heart are, are only evil all the time. Like, we get human depravity. So when people start, start talking about, well, you should hear, did you hear? We're like, oh yeah, you probably don't even know the half of it, right? Things are actually worse than you think when it comes to what people are capable of. Here's kind of the age in which we live in, the spirit of our age. Have you noticed this? That everybody thinks everybody else is a conspiracy theorist. A conspiracy theorist is basically just anyone who disagrees with the things I believe. It's hilarious. I was uh, listening to this guy um, this week uh, and, and, and kind of on two different sides, like there were these two uh, 
you know, some people at our church were like, hey, you should really listen to this, right? And it's a couple different, and they were both talking from different sides. Like this person over here was saying, those people over there, they're trying to do this. And, and these people really wanted me to be aware of like this conspiracy. And then the people over here were like, it was their expert that was saying the same thing about the other side. And I just, I think that's hilarious because this is exactly what was happening in Isaiah's time. The people are reverting to, did you hear what's going on? Did you hear? And here's the point. My point is not to refute whatever it is that you believe. That, that's really not the point. Here's the problem with going down this conspiracy theory route is you end up believing that human deception is more powerful than God's sovereignty. And you attribute more awe to humans than to the God of this universe. And that's a dangerous place to be. Verse 13 because we don't know exactly what this, these conspiracies were. It's possible that even Isaiah and Jeremiah, these prophets, were called conspiracy theorists because they were telling the people to trust in God and not these diplomatic actions of King Ahaz or whatever it is. But the point being, he says in verse 13, you are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. Isaiah, don't ascribe so much awe and fear to humans. Christian, we don't need to live in fear and almost paranoia over geopolitical events because our God is the Lord of armies. You get to Revelation 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. The only possible way that I'm able to process those pictures that we just saw from our dear Zambian brothers and sisters, you think our politics is bad, you need a free trip to Zambia. <laughs> And you will see what bad politics is and conspiracies and evil. And our team gets to Zambia with all these medical supplies and we're like being honest and they're for the orphans and they're like, great, we'll take them. But they're for the orphans. Nope, they're for us. And if you're a Zambian and you're getting so caught up in all the conspiracies, the only possible way I can process those pictures is that there is a God and judge of this universe and he is worthy to open the scroll and every nation and tribe and tongue will come before him and they will give an account to him for everything they've done. So that conspiracy that you're worried about, Jesus Christ sees it and he gets it and he will sort it all out.
The third example of how we do the same thing they did of fighting darkness with darkness is verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of mediums and spiritists who chirp and mutter. Shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. The sun will never rise. It will just only be darkness if they reject the word of God. The last way that we often as humans fight darkness with more darkness is we ignore God's word. Ignoring God's word will lead us to even greater darkness. What do we have without the word of God? If we just say, you know, let's, hey, Veritas, let's be done with this book. And we just kind of put it away. Next week when you show up, you know what, we're just going to, this book's kind of outdated and there's, you know, so we're just, when you come next week, we're just going to start like preaching the stuff we've been listening to and online. And, you know, we've got a lot of political ideas and hot takes. And what's left? When we look to our own opinions and our own knowledge for guidance, all that's left is my news network against yours, my podcast against yours, my candidate against yours, my expert against yours, my science against yours, my fact-checking against yours, right? When we power up with human knowledge instead of kneeling before God's wisdom and God's word, the darkness only gets darker. And so this leads us to stop number three on our journey. The last question is, how do you fight darkness? So what's the solution? How do we overcome this present darkness? I have great news for your church. We don't. We don't overcome the darkness. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Verse 6, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. The child is given. The child is a gift. The light pierces the darkness, and it has nothing to do with our works and effort and earning And here's what's amazing. 750 years after Isaiah writes this prophecy, look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. When Jesus heard, excuse me, that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, our passage, Isaiah 9, 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Where did Jesus choose to live and begin his ministry? There it is, verse 13. Zebulun and Naphtali. The first to feel the wrath of God through the sword of a godless Assyrian king are the first people to experience the mercy of God through the person of Jesus Christ. I think that's amazing. What hope? That gives hope for us because the person who walked into this room feeling the most unworthy is probably the first person that Jesus would choose to have a conversation with this morning. If you came in this morning and you were feeling like your life is so hopeless and you're looking at yourself and saying, oh, I'm not cursing God. I have all the blame for my life. I think Jesus, of all the people in this room, would come and find you first, just like he did Zebulun and Naphtali. I think that is amazing. And verse 17 says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The way that we fight the darkness, that last stop, is that we repent and receive. Repent and receive. This word repent means to change your thinking. Start seeing the world through a different lens. You know, you're born into this world seeing the world a certain way. And Jesus wants you to think differently. Think different than the world. Remember in verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11, when he tells Isaiah, Isaiah, I'm telling you this with great power. Listen to me, Isaiah. Don't go the way of the world. Repentance is essentially looking at the ways the world tries to solve the darkness problem and do it differently. Think differently. Be different. That's what it means. Jesus says to be salt and light in the world means that you're not just decaying and dying like the culture. You're a preserving influence like salt. You're not contributing more darkness, more argumentation, more outrage, more anger. No, you're bringing kindness and joy and peace and light into the world. So look at the ways the world tries to fight darkness but only produces more darkness and think differently. So repentance means practically replacing blame with confession. 
looking to the sky, and instead of cursing God, you get on your knees and say, Jesus, my sin is the greatest problem in the universe. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That would be step number one to repentance. Number two, I think repentance means replacing political and conspiracy obsessions with trusting Jesus Christ as ruler and king. That prayer might look something like this. Jesus Christ, I fear you more than fill in the blank. What are you afraid of this morning? What are you obsessed about? When you look at the world, what just makes you so angry? What makes you just say, you know what? Everybody's losing their minds out there. And you're just, you are angry and maybe afraid. And maybe you're right about your conspiracy thoughts, right? Maybe you're right. But if it's causing you to be consumed with things like anxiety or fear, that means you are placing those things above your fear of God. And I invite you to repentance. And I'm not just talking to you. I'm preaching this to myself. And this is not a just hide in a cave and don't listen to the news and shut off all you. That's not what this is. I'm talking about our, the, the posture of our heart toward God in these things. Does this make sense? The third thing, repentance means replacing the pride of leaning on your own understanding with the humility of leaning on the truth of God's word. Remember Isaiah 8.20, go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. Go back to the word of God. Let God's word dwell in you richly. Meditate on this word day and night so you can be careful to do everything written in it. We know that John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word what? Verse 14, John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See, look, look at Jesus. There's God in flesh. The word became flesh. The word is Jesus Christ. Look to him. But the way that you know Jesus and know what his voice sounds like in your life is you, you read the word and you take it in. This is uh, Psalm 86, 11 says, teach me your way, O Lord, so that I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. 
The way that you revere God more than all of your political theories and ideas is you do the Psalm 8611. The way that you fear God is you walk in his truth. So practically, what this looks like, what this looks like in my life, it doesn't mean spend two hours when you wake up and before you go to bed just reading the word and all through your lunch hour and everything. Like for me, this just looks like kind of like a a bowl of cereal when I wake up, right? I just wake up and the first thing I do is I'm still doing the the Bible reading plan that I was talking about last last, uh, January, just the daily time with God. I open my Bible app and I look at the verse of the day and then I'm in this little New Testament Bible reading plan. And this morning, I was in Revelation, uh, I think five or six. It's the, the passage that, uh, is anyone, is he worthy? That, pa- that comes from Revelation 6, I believe. And I was just reading that chapter this morning. So I read that. And then I showed up at church and we're singing it. I'm like, wow, maybe the Lord is speaking to me. You know, as I'm reading the Bible, I don't always realize like it's this like deep time with the Lord. But as my day goes on, it's like God reinforces it. Like remember, Mark, I'm worthy. And so, the, the verse of the day was this guy, N.T. Wright, led a little devotional. It's all on the Bible app. You can just, just look it up. And he was talking about Psalm 95. And I was thinking, that was, the, that was the page that Tracy ripped out of my Bible. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. And N.T. Wright said, it's good to actually kneel before the Lord. So I read that and I'm like, wow, I should kneel this morning. So I'm, it's freezing cold in my house. We like a cold house. So I crawl on my knees with my blanket over me and I just am on my knees, right? Because of the word. And then my daughter comes over and she's like, she like pulls up the blanket. She's like, what are you doing under there? And I'm like, well, you should join me, Savannah. So she got on her knees with me and we just prayed together. Like, that's just what it looks like. And today I'm gonna watch a bunch of football and probably won't read the Bible again. You know what? That's just life with Jesus every single day. You just spend some time with him. You don't need to conquer Rome every single week, right? You don't need to like have this amazing time with God just, just every day. Start your day. Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. This is how you live as a child of the light in the land of darkness. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, thank you for coming into our darkness and bringing light and hope and joy. Fill us this morning, we pray in your name. Amen.